Salutations, listeners. You are listening to another episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast, and I'm your host, Nathan Holloway, your doctor for jazz. And it is our mission here at the Dr. Jazz Podcast to cure whatever it is that ails you through the power and the majesty of jazz music. For this episode, oh, we've got a good one for you. <laughs> uh, I'm calling the title of this episode The Low End Theory. Barons of the Berry Sacks. We've got 12 glorious spotlights and profiles on some of the baddest berries that have ever come through the history of jazz. Now, because we are limiting this to not 25 or not 21 or anything like that, we're shortening our podcasts. Um, it, I did have to leave a couple by the wayside, and I know that there's going to be some favorites that are probably missed. But keep in mind, um, art is very subjective. So these are just the 12 that really have spoken to me as a saxophonist. And as someone who listens to a whole lot of jazz. So I certainly hope that um, whether you agree or whether you disagree, that these 12 barons of the Barry Sacks uh, will provide some groovy jazz for you. And who knows, there might be one or two that you may not have heard of. So there you go. Um, I'm certainly hoping that um, this also keeps more continuity and regularity for the podcasts, doing doing them and recording them uh, this soon so that um, we can enjoy some more podcasts and hopefully you all aren't too starved for too long. Uh, once again, thank you all for listening. We're nothing without you and we do appreciate you. Um, yeah, so without further ado, let's get to the low end theory. Barons of the Barry Sacks here on the Dr. Jazz Podcast. We'd like to dedicate this show to Ronnie Cooper. Thank you. 
Duke certainly hit that on the head. That is the incomparable Harry Carney, one of the very first to do it. Um, Harry Carney, of course, was not only a Barry Sachs um, player, but he was also a clarinet and bass clarinet player for Duke Ellington. Spent um, four decades playing for Duke Ellington as a member of his orchestra. Um, he was also the critical influence on the Barry Sachs to so many of the players that we're going to hear in this podcast. Um, he was actually born on April Fool's Day in Boston, Boston, Massachusetts. And strangely enough, he actually grew up really, really close, uh, like almost in the same neighborhood as Johnny Hodges, who is another huge influence and sound and component to the Ellington Orchestra. Uh, he began playing the piano at age seven, but then he moved to the clarinet at 14. Then he added the alto sax a year later. Um, he, <laughs> The early influences on his jazz playing uh, included Buster Bailey, the great clarinetist, Sidney Bechet, who spent a little time with the Ellington Band, although he was never recorded, and Don Murray. He also said that for his Barry sax playing, he tried to make his upper register sound like Coleman Hawkins, the tenor saxophone, you know, father of the tenor saxophone, right? And the lower register, he wanted to sound like Adrian Rolini. So for those of you who aren't very familiar with Adrian Rolini, he was part of the Goofus Five uh, he was part of that whole crew that hung out with like Red Nichols and stuff like that. And he played a bass saxophone. Yeah, he was actually a bass saxophonist and a mallet player. Go figure. So um, he tried to make his bot. So in other words, Harry Carney was trying to make his bottom end sound as full as a bass saxophone. But his top register of his baritone saxophone sound and cut through the same way that Coleman Hawkins and a tenor saxophone would. That's pretty cool, uh, considering you, that he was kind of the pioneer of this instrument. So, um, And we heard him play with the Ellington Orchestra, Sophisticated Lady, which was one of his big showstoppers because um, <laughs> he... Could he could circular breathe, and what circular breathe means is that he could hold a note for forever and ever and ever and ever and ever because you're basically pushing out air from air that is packed in your cheeks at the same time you're inhaling air through your nostrils to recycle through your lungs. And you know, this is just as a side note. This is just something that I always tell people. You know, who are just fascinated by Kenny G. They're like, oh my word, he is so talented. He is just holding a note. He could go on all night just holding one single note. And I'm like, yeah, but Harry Carney did that like, you know, 80 years ago. And they're like, who? So it's all about perspective, right? A soprano saxophone is the, you know, one of the, the, the smallest in the saxophone family. Where the Barry sax... I mean, the reeds are pretty much like tree bark, you know. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, it does take a lot more air to circulate through a baritone saxophone than a soprano saxophone. So, 
And there was no precedent before that. So he was kind of the first to do it. So I, I give ultimate props to Harry Carney. Um, and of course, Duke would have a character like that in his band. Um, we're going to we're going to come back. We're going to draw upon some uh, instances with Harry Carney uh, throughout the podcast. But the this version of Sophisticated Lady comes from the Verve album Soul Call from Duke Ellington and um, killer, killer, killer orchestra. In the trumpet section, Cat Anderson, Mercer Ellington, Herbie Jones, and Cootie Williams. Lawrence Brown and Buster Cooper in the trombone section along with Chuck Connors. Johnny Hodges on alto saxophone, Russell Prokop on alto sax and clarinet, Jimmy Hamilton on tenor sax and clarinet, Paul Gonsalves on the tenor saxophone, and... Harry Carney in the Barry Sax chair. Also playing clarinet and bass clarinet, as I mentioned before. Uh, Sam Woodyard is on the drums. John Lamb is on the bass. And, of course, the Duke himself is on the piano. This is recorded in July 1966. So, Harry Carney was doing that at age 56. 56, he was doing that. So there you go. Mm, 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 mm. All right, before that, we heard Talkin' the Blues from the Blue Note album Rollin' with Leo. We heard Barry saxophone extraordinaire Leo Parker. And uh, Leo Parker was born in Washington, D.C., Studied uh, alto saxophone, and then uh, he also played alto on a recording with Coleman Hawkins in 1944. But he switched to the baritone sax in 1944 when he joined Billy Eckstein's bebop band. And he played there for the next two years from 1944 and through 1946. Uh, In 1945, he was a member of the Unholy Four which included himself, Leo Parker, with Dexter Gordon, Sonny Stitt, and Gene Ammons. Then he played on 52nd Street with Dizzy Gillespie, and uh, as well as Illinois Jacquet. And later, and that's from 46 to 48. And later he recorded with uh, Fats Navarro, J.J. Johnson, Teddy Edwards, the great Wardell Gray, and Sir Charles Thompson. And uh, him and Charles Thompson uh, had a great hit with Mad Lad. So, uh, unfortunately, in the 1950s, he had some issues with drug abuse, which did uh, interfere with his recording career. He did uh, make two Blue Note records uh, with his comeback, and this was one of the two records. Um, But sadly, in... 1962, early 1962, he died of a heart attack, and it was only 36. So, uh, this track that we heard in the middle of that set, Talking the Blues, uh, was released in 1961, just a year before his passing. And um, it's one of those beautiful slow blues. And, you know, 
to be part of the Unholy Four, a lot of people do still talk about Sonny Stitt and Dexter Gordon. Some still talk about Gene Ammons, but hardly anybody talks about Leo Parker. And he's a little unsung, but I definitely think that he is worthy of being called a baron of the Barry Sachs because he is just so good and so has such facility on the instrument. So, there you go. And then we started off the set with who we are dedicating this entire episode of the podcast to, and that is the late, great Ronnie Cuber. Uh, Ronnie Cuber sadly passed away on October 7th, 2022, um, just a little over a month ago, and as the recording of this podcast. Uh, he was 80 years old, but... There is no denying it that Ronnie Cuber is a an absolute beast, and he is beyond a baron of the Barry saxophone. Um, yeah, we heard him with the uh, the Lonnie the, the the Dr. Lonnie Smith group from the Blue Note album Live at Club Mozambique, uh, recorded May twenty first, nineteen seventy, in Detroit, Michigan. We heard the track Scream, which is just so groovy. Um, Dave Hubbard on the tenor sax, George Benson on the guitar, Dr. Lonnie Smith on the organ, Joe Dukes on the drum, um, Gary Jones on the congas, Clifford Mack on the tambourine, and of course Ronnie Cuber on the Barry sax. Um, yeah, I mean, this guy has played with everybody you just name it eddie paul mary bb king dr lonnie smith george benson eric clapton paul simon maynard ferguson frank zappa lee konitz slide hampton um my god steve gad patty austin um grant green billy joel Jimmy McGriff, Idris Muhammad, Horace Silver, Gerald Wilson, Randy Brecker, Duke, or, I'm sorry, Dr. John, Tom Scott. I mean, it's just, the list is endless and endless and endless. The Mingus Big Band, and, and that actually draws up a memory that I had. I was lucky enough to see the Mingus Big Band live when they used to play at the Fez Under Time Cafe in New York City. Um, I was on a trip with my college uh jazz band to go play a couple of gigs in new york and we all went out to and just tried to club hop because i mean you know a couple of kids from alabama you know when's the next time we're gonna be in new york right so a lot of us hit as many clubs as we could and i was lucky enough i got to see three completely different shows i got to see john zorn's electric masada at the tonic the heath brothers at the village vanguard and I got to see the Mingus Big Band at the Fez Under Time Cafe. Now, why am I bringing that up? Well, it happened to be Sue Mingus's birthday. And so the stars were out to celebrate Sue's birthday in the Mingus Big Band. And Randy Brecker was in the trumpet section, etc. And anyway, they just tried to seat us wherever they could on the floor. Um, here, put a chair here, put a chair there, put a chair there. And I was lucky enough that I got to sit about two feet away behind Ronnie Cuber. Now, that in itself is enough to just make a wow story. But they played Monin. And for those of you who knows 
Charles Mingus's Monin, it is a Barry Sachs feature. And to see Ronnie Cuber stand up and just reverberate a room and rattle the floors and the walls with his sound. Oh, it was just breathtaking. It really was. And I feel really lucky and blessed that I got to see Ronnie do his thing. So, um, that being said, he is going to be very, very, very sadly missed as he is a legend, um, on the Barry Sachs and, um, he's a legend in the jazz idiom. So, there you have it. And he is the inspiration kind of behind this this episode of the podcast. And we definitely want to uh, dedicate the entire podcast to the memory and the wonderful, wonderful music that Ronnie Cuber has made throughout his entire 80-year career. I mean, he, he was 80 years old. So it's just incredible. Um, so, yeah, Ronnie Cuber, Leo Parker, Harry Carney incredible three incredible barons of the Barry Sachs. Remember, you can find the Dr. Jazz podcast wherever you find your podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, Amazon Podcasts, we are there. So feel free to share with any family or friends who you think might enjoy it. And don't forget to leave us a positive review if you feel like it on Apple Podcasts. It will definitely help us out. That that's the one of the few places where you can write a your own review in your own words. Um, also don't worry about jotting down artists or albums or titles because we've done all of that for you. <clears throat> all you have to do is go to our website, which is Dr. Jazz podcast, D R J A Z Z podcast dot wordpress dot com. And there you can find out artist song title and album art info for each tune as it is presented in order of each episode of the podcast. So that way you can go out and support your own local record shops if you have one, if you find a a song or two or an album or two that you'd like to check out. Additionally, if you click contact at the top of the page on our website, it will take you to an email that you can directly email to me, and we will write you back. So For all of you who have written so far, thank you so much. We do appreciate you, and hopefully we've written everyone back by this point. So, um, yeah, so enough PSA. Remember, we're not making a dime off this. We actually have to pay to, you know, (laughs) upload this stuff. Um, It is truly a labor of love, and we just hope that you dig some awesome jazz music. Okay, so enough of that. Let's get back to some more low-end theory here on the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Thank you. 
great, great stuff, man. Um, okay, wow, three really great barons of the Barry Sachs there. Um, so let's go back. We started off the set with the beautiful standard, All the Things You Are, by Kern and Hammerstein. Um, what we heard there was the Barry Sachs of Serge Chaloff um, from his Capital Jazz album, Blue Surge. Um, killer rhythm section, besides Serge just doing his thing. Philly Joe Jones is on the drums on that track. Leroy Venager is on the bass. And the one and only Sonny Clark is killing the piano chair. Uh, recorded... Let's see, track four would have been March 16th, 1956. So there you go, day before St. Patty's Day. Um, yeah, Serge Chaloff is just one of those infamous, <laughs> infamous characters in the history of jazz. Uh, of course, besides being a great um, solo artist, he had uh, he played in quite a number of big bands, most notably Woody Herman's band. Um, and everybody has a, a Serge Chaloff story. Um, one that I recently, uh, I've been wrapping up the last, uh, I don't know, let's see, chapter and a half, I guess, uh, from Ira Gittler's book, Swing to Bop, which is a fantastic book. If you haven't checked it out, Man, let me tell you, that is a, it, it, it kind of reads like Nat Hentoff's Hear Me Talking to You. It's just a series of Ira going around to different um, jazz musicians who were there and confirming and corroborating a lot of these stories, you know. Um, and it's it, it really kind of chronicles that gray area, that transition from the swing era of the big bands into the bebop era of much smaller uh, combos. And it was a lot of transitions. It was transition from big groups to smaller groups. It was a transition from ensemble playing to soloistic virtuosity. And it was, uh, in many of the ways, um, a transition from dance music and popular music to non-danceable music and more of a bohemian, you know, uh, take on the music so yeah and it, it, it chronicles so much but one of the things that they talk about is Serge Chaloff and um, I believe it was Zoot Sims who was in the Woody Herman band with him and that seems to be <laughs> where he was his most infamous um, and uh, I've already told in one of the former podcasts the story about him throwing the complete Barry Sachs um, folder the book, you know, for the Woody Herman Orchestra off the balcony and Woody freaking out. And he said, you can't fire me now because I have the entire book memorized, right? Um, and nobody else can play that book but me. But besides being that, um, you know, Zoot was saying that Serge could be very charming. He could be very suave, very debonair. Uh, but Serge liked to live to extremes. He did everything to the nth degree, good and bad. And unfortunately, when he drank, he was a heavy, heavy drinker. And unfortunately, he was also one of the few who didn't ride the bus. Um, along with the band, he had his own car that he opted to drive all the time. And so 
Zoot, you know, <laughs> uh, was riding along with Serge one night, and they they were getting a little sleepy. And anyway, so they took a turn where they thought you know the the next stop would be, and then everything was bumpy all of a sudden. And right now you may think like, oh, we got a flat tire. No, it turned out that he took the wrong turn. He thought that the um, the street was actually a railroad track, so he was hitting all the different wooden ties, you know, literally going, you know, alongside the, the, the tracks. So uh, they had to turn around and, and get on, right back on the road. But, yeah, Serge is just one of those infamous characters. There's always a Serge Shaloff story. Um, yeah, they, somebody should write a book just about Serge. That would be fun to read. It really would. Anyway, so Serge Shaloff, regardless of the infamousness, is still one of the top-notch Barry saxophone players in the idiom of jazz music. And you've got to give Serge's due. He is hyper-melodic, very lyrical, and has one of the best tones on the Barry sax. So, um, in the middle of the set, the second song that we heard, we heard Haitian Fight Song, which is a Charles Mingus composition, uh, by the Pepper Adams Octet. And that, of course, uh, was Thad Jones on the trumpet, Benny Powell on the trombone, Charles McPherson on the alto sax, our good friend that we just mentioned, Zoot Sims on the tenor saxophone, Hank Jones, brother to Thad, on the piano, the great Bob Cranshaw on bass, and Mingus's drummer, Danny Richmond, on the drums, alongside the leader and Barry saxophone player, Pepper Adams. And, um, yeah, you really got um, a, a great album here. This is Pepper Adams Plays Charlie Mingus. And um, although he hated being called Charlie, he loved being called Charles, not Charlie. Uh, but I didn't put the title. It is what it is. Uh, it's on Fresh Sound Records. It's the Pepper Adams Quintet and the Pepper Adams Octet. And this is... A, th- this. This call was a little tough for me. I knew that I wanted to play something by Pepper Adams. But I didn't know if I wanted to do something that was later Pepper Adams, earlier Pepper Adams, uh, the stuff with Donald Byrd that he did. Um, But then ultimately, as I was going through all my Pepper Adams, I, I opted for this one just because it's got so much blood in the music and it's just so fantastic. You, you've got to include Pepper Adams on any list of Barry saxophone extraordinaire lists in jazz. Um, he's just that good. He's just that integral. He's played with everybody. Um, but yeah, man, this is, this is so good. Haitian fight song. He really, he, he kind of takes center spotlight on this particular tune and, um, he rips a great solo on top of that. So, um, yeah, I would highly suggest this album despite the name Charlie in there, because it's got Fables of Faubus, Song with Orange, Better Get in Your Soul, um, Portrait, Incarnation, Haitian Fight Song, and all of these compositions are by Charles Minkus. Um, so yeah, you, you, you can't go wrong with Pepper Adams at all. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, and, you know, that's the thing, is that besides... Um, playing with Mingus and stuff. I mean, Pepper Adams even recorded with Chet Baker. 
um, which is just in, incredible. You know what I mean? Um, but Pepper Adams, you know, let's talk about Park Frederick Pepper Adams the Third. Um, born October eighth, nineteen thirty. Passed away September tenth, nineteen eighty six. Uh, he was fifty five. He was um, born in Highland Park, Michigan, and his uh, his dad was a manager of a furniture furniture store. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, both of his parents were college graduates. Each spent some time at the University of Michigan. Uh, due to the Great Depression, his parents separated to allow his father to find work without geographic dependence. So, he kind of grew up without his dad. Uh, in the fall of 31, his, um, he moved with his mother to her extended family near uh, Columbia City, Indiana, uh, where basically it was a survival move because more food and support were available. Uh, in 33, he began to play piano. Uh, his father reunited with the family, and then they moved to Rochester, New York in 1935. And that is when he started on the tenor sax and the clarinet. Two years later, he, developing, he developed a passion for music by listening to the daily radio show of Fats Waller, out of all people. Uh, he was also influenced by Fletcher Henderson's big band, uh, Jimmy Lunsford, Cab Calloway, and no doubt, Duke Ellington. And in Duke Ellington's band, as we had already talked about, was Harry Carney. And in 1943, Pepper Adams skipped school for a week in order to see Duke play local gigs. He met Rex Stewart, and Rex Stewart introduced him to Harry Carney. This led... Pepper Adams uh, to be able to take lessons from Skippy Williams, who was a tenor saxophonist in Ellington's band. Adams switched to the tenor saxophone in the fall of 1943, and um, he worked some odd jobs in order to save enough money for the instrument. Uh, But his job at the jazz store also allowed him to listen to all the newest jazz records that were available and led to this emulation of Coleman Hawkins and Don Bias. And eventually, um, at what is age 16, Pepper and his mom moved to Detroit where um, he began playing with Willie Wells, who he had heard as a kid play for Fletcher Henderson as well as uh, playing for Fats Navarro, Tommy Flanagan, and Willie Anderson. Um, he received casual instruction from Billy Mitchell and Wardell Gray, believe it or not. Um, he initially purchased a, uh, a used Bundy Barry Sachs, but later traded it for a Selmer Balanced Action in 1948, which he used for 30 years until 1978, believe it or not. Um, yeah, and he was soon playing in Lucky Thompson's band, and uh, that's where he would meet future partners like Donald Byrd, which is great because they, he, he made a whole host of great records with Donald Byrd. Um, yeah, and... 
He also spent some time in the U.S. Army Band, had a tour of duty in Korea. Uh, and then when he came back from his tour, he played at the Bluebird Inn in Detroit uh, with Thad Jones, uh, Beans Richardson. And uh, in 1954, he left the Bluebird to join Kenny Burrell's group. And with that, now you see he's starting to, you know, kind of rub shoulders with a lot bigger names and touring folk, etc., etc., etc. And finally, he joined the Stan Kenton Orchestra in 56 um, until he left the ensemble and uh, was part of a new ensemble with Lee Katzman and Mel Lewis in Los Angeles. But before moving to California... He also recorded with Kenny Clark, Curtis Fuller, and Quincy Jones. And he even joined Chet Baker's group in 1957, where he played for about a year. So, uh, yeah, you can kind of see that the beginning of uh, Pepper Adams was very interesting. And, you know, that's the thing. He just had... He... This certain style, it's different than, I mean, it's the same instrument, but it's almost um, a little bit more bittersweet of a tone than certain other Barry saxophone barons, if you will. So, um, yeah, regardless, it's just, it's wonderful. And you, I highly, highly, highly suggest uh, you checking out more Pepper Adams. Anyway, we ended that set with probably the most famous Barry saxophone baron of all. And when you generally say Barry sax, a lot of people who are casual classic jazz fans will think of one name, and that will be Jerry Mulligan, who we heard finish off that set with Festive Minor with the Jerry Mulligan Quartet featuring Chet Baker. Um... Yeah, so it's the last track on this uh, compilation, The Best of Jerry Mulligan Quartet with Chet Baker. Uh, This is a great introductory set. It's Dave Bailey on the drums, Henry Grimes, believe it or not, the legendary bass player, Henry Grimes, uh, on bass, Chet Baker on trumpet, and Jerry Mulligan on Barry sax. But what made Jerry really, I think suitable and appealing for a lot of listeners is his melodicism. I mean, he was constantly coming up with these beautiful counter lines and this counterpoint to Chet Baker's trumpet playing or Art Farmer's trumpet playing um, or Paul Desmond's, you know what I mean? And the point is, is that Jerry was a master of just coming up on the spot with these beautiful counter lines that would weave in and out of the melody and and hit these beautiful chord tones and he was able to do this without any kind of piano or or guitar and that's really where the genius of Jerry Mulligan lies see Jerry Mulligan was primarily an arranger and composer and because he arranged for big bands and because he arranged for so many small combo groups and things like that he was constantly used to having to write through counterpoint things so whether you're hearing Jerry Mulligan play with Bob Brookmeyer or Chet or, you know, it doesn't Paul Desmond, um, Art Farmer, he, he can just make their solos or their little lines sound beautiful. 
and a lot of times it's his own tunes anyway. So there you go. Um, but Jerry Mulligan is not the only Baron of the Barry Sacks. This is the Low End Theory episode of the Dr. Jazz Podcast. And so with that, we want to make sure that we give a full scope of as many uh, varied sounds as you can find on the Barry Saxophone. So we do hope you've enjoyed so far. That's it. Had Serge Chaloff with All the Things You Are, Pepper Adams with Haitian Fight Song, and Jerry Mulligan with Festive Minor. All right. So um, enough talking for me. It's probably been too long now. Let's get back to some great music here on the Low End Theory, Barons of the Barry Sacks on the Dr. Jazz Podcast. Thank you. 
that's some pretty, pretty playing right there. Whew. All right. So that Baron of the Berry Sacks that we just heard playing the Timeless Standard Body and Soul was actually Joe Temperley. And Joe Temperley, um, funny enough, <laughs> uh, was born in Scotland. And Cowden Beath, Scotland. And um, he was a Scottish saxophonist. That's a tongue twister for you. Um, but he grew up in Loch Gelly. His father was a bus driver, uh, started on cornet at the age of 12, then switched to, fort, uh, to saxophone at 14. Um, I mean, this guy's play with everybody. Um, he started out in, uh, well, he joined Humphrey Lightleton's band, London-based band, the trumpet player Humphrey Lightleton. And if you're not sure if you know who Humphrey Lightleton is, um, go to those, uh, videos of Jazz 625, uh, in the 60s, and you'll see, like, Oscar Peterson and Bill Evans and all those great cats, and the host is, um, uh, the trumpet player, Humphrey Lyttleton. Now, funny thing about Humphrey Lyttleton, little fun fact, tidbit, whatever you want to call it. He actually played on Radiohead's uh, Kid A in the horn section because they're British as well. So there you go. Huh. There you go. Anyway, uh, so back to Joe Temperley, great Barry saxophone player. He joined uh, Humphrey's band in 57 and stayed until 1965. And then he moved to the United States. And then after six months in the U.S., he was recruited by Woody Herman. And he toured with Woody for two years. But he also played with Buddy Rich, Joe Henderson, Duke Pearson, the Jazz Composers Orchestra, the Thad Jones Mel Lewis Orchestra, Clark Terry, and even in 1974, he toured and recorded with the Duke Ellington Orchestra as a replacement for Harry Carney. That's how good this guy is. Uh, but in the 1980s, he played uh, in the Broadway show Sophisticated Ladies. And then he started doing film soundtracks and playing on those. So he was on the soundtracks for the movies Cotton Club, Biloxi Blues, Brighton Beach Memoirs, When Harry Met Sally, and Tune In Tomorrow. And during the recording of Tune In Tomorrow, that the music for that was composed by none other than trumpeter Wynton Marsalis. Um, so he was, as at this point in time in Wynton's career, he was just getting started uh, with the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. And he called upon Joe Temperley, uh, to be an original member of the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra. So, yeah. And besides all those things, he's actually played with Buck Clayton, uh, Diodato, um, Louise Bonfa, Benny Carter, Wycliffe Gordon, Victor Feldman, um, Jerry Mulligan, Ted Nash, Anthony Wilson, and many, many, many others. It's just, this guy truly has lived 
uh, a life of lives. I mean, he he was 86 when he passed, but a beautiful sound on the on on the the Barry sax and definitely could easily navigate those changes to body and soul, which is not easy, by the way. But he he did it, and I certainly hope you enjoyed it. Before that, in the middle of the set, we heard the song "Girl, You Got a Home," and that was performed by none other than the Baron of the Barry Sax, Cecil Payne. Uh, Cecil Payne was born in Brooklyn, played alto sax and flute besides the Barry Sax. Um, played with many, many, many other prominent jazz musicians, including. Dizzy Gillespie, Randy Weston, Cannonball Adderley, Gene Ammons, Count Basie, Kenny Burrell, Jimmy Cleveland, Ray Charles, Kenny Clark, John Coltrane, Tad Dameron, Kenny Dorham, Benny Golson, Al Gray, Gigi Grice, Ernie, Ernie Wilkins, Randy Weston, Leon Thomas, Clark Terry, Sonny Stitt, Jimmy Smith, Archie Shep, James Moody, Duke Jordan, Quincy Jones, Billy Joe Jones, J.J. Johnson, Illinois Jacquet, Ernie Henry, Johnny Hammond, among many others, and making his own albums as a leader. Um, Roy Elders is somebody else. Count Basie, uh, Lester Young. My God, yeah, this guy's just played with everybody. Um, yeah. He received his first saxophone at 13 uh, after hearing uh, Lester Young play Honeysuckle Rose with Count Basie. Uh, he took lessons, and he he got to be good enough that by 1946, he began his professional recording career with J.J. Johnson on the Savoy label. He also began that same year, 1946, playing with Roy Eldridge, with whom he met Dizzy Gillespie. And the rest, as they say, is history. I'm not going to keep on, you know, going through every little bit. But, yeah. That uh, track, Girl, You Got a Home, as groovy as it is with a nice organ and everything, comes from his Strata East label album, Zodiac. Uh, It was recorded in 1968, but not released until 1973. Yeah. Just incredible, incredible uh, groove to that. And then we started off the set with the one, the only, Bruce Johnstone with the Maynard Ferguson Orchestra. From M.F. Horn, Volume 4 and 5, Live at Jimmy's, we heard Got the Spirit, which features an entire, huge, open Barry Sax solo to start out the entire track with. Uh, Bruce Johnstone is still kicking. He is a New Zealand American jazz baritone saxophone player. But besides that, he also plays alto sax, bass clarinet, and flute. He was born in Wellington, New Zealand, uh, and was a member of Maynard's band from 72 to 76 uh, after playing in Denmark with Ben Webster and Dexter Gordon and with Stan Kenton in London. He was regularly featured in Downbeat Magazine's Reader's Poll behind Jerry Mulligan and Pepper Adams, who we've already heard in this podcast. Uh, In the mid-1970s, he was a founding member of the jazz funk band 
New York Mary. But in 77, he joined Woody and toured and recorded with that band until April of 78. He taught at the State University of New York at Fredonia, Fredonia, SUNY Fredonia, uh, as director of jazz studies for, for 15 years until recently in 2016. During his last year at Fredonia, he performed a concert with trumpet player Arturo Sandoval. Uh, he's been a regular player with the Buffalo Philharmonic Orchestra, uh, jazz concerts for the last 20 years, and has appeared on several Grammy-winning recordings. Um, actually, yeah, what, what's funny is I knew that he played around the Buffalo Erie area because I dated a girl once who was a, an accomplished jazz singer, and she was one of the singers for this band, and uh, she got to know Bruce pretty well. And from according to her, he was a very hip dude. So um, kind of took her, her under his wing. And, yeah, he's a nice, apparently a really nice guy. He's certainly talented. And besides all those things, he is definitively a baron of the Barry Sacks because, um, man, just stretching out with loads of feeling. I mean, he's just oozing soul from that intro. And then it just picks up with a whole, you know, gospel thing. And then I love the ending of that with her, all the band members just in acapella sing, Amen. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. Um, so remember, you can find the Dr. Jazz podcast. Hopefully you're enjoying it wherever you find your podcast. Whether that's SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Amazon Podcasts, we are there. So feel free to dial in and check us out wherever you get your podcasts. Also, if you want to find out track, artist, or album art information so you know exactly what you're getting, we've got all that covered for you. Just head up our website, which is Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast.wordpress.com, and there you can find out all the info. Plus, at the top of the page, you can hit contact, and you can email us, which we would love to hear from you, and we will write you back. So... Uh, we've got one more set coming at you, and this is probably one of my favorite sets out of the whole episode here, but we certainly do hope that you have enjoyed it, and um, yeah, here we go, the last set of Barons of the Barry Sacks, the low end theory. <laughs>
Ah! Uh -huh. 
Oh, yeah. All righty, righty. So, uh, that last guy that we just heard is none other than Leo Pellegrino, also known as Leo P., uh, who is a one of the most recent Barry saxophone players, uh, definitively a baron of the Barry sax, and it lets us know that the future is in good hands because Leo was born June 3rd, nineteen ninety. One in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to accordionist uh, and composer Stephen Pellegrino. Um, he's uh, a member of the Brass House Band Too Many Zoos and a former member of the band Lucky Chops. He's also in a collaboration project with alto saxophonist Grace Kelly, known as Too Saxy. Um, he has been uh, a kind of a viral sensation on YouTube. Um, due to his crazy hairstyle uh, and many colors and his dress styles and his busking in uh, the Union Square station. Uh, Too Many Zoos was also featured on Beyonce's 2016 album Lemonade and uh, joined her for a performance of Daddy Lessons at the 2016 Country Music Awards. Um, yeah, what we heard there was Charles Mingus's Moanin'. And that was performed in, at the 2017 BBC Proms concert on the works of Charles Mingus. Uh, he was a guest player with the Metropole Orchestra, uh, as well as, besides him, it was also the trumpet player Christian Atunje, Atunje Ajua Scott. Um, killing it. 
absolutely killing it. And yeah, so many kids, whether they're into jazz or not, know Leo Pellegrino's name, which is just fantastic. Uh, before that, we heard the one and only James Carter, multi-saxophonist James Carter. Uh, we heard from we heard the tr- the Duke Ellington composition "Caravan" with Juan Tizal, "Caravan," and that comes from James's um, 1994 DIW record, "JC on the Set," uh, recorded in '93, released in '94. Just an incredible player, James Carter is. No matter what saxophone is in his hand. Check out some James Carter if you haven't. And then we started off that set with one of the greatest Barry Saxophone Barons in the history of jazz, the one and only Hammett Blewett. Hammett Blewett played a wide array of saxophones and clarinets, but he's mainly known as one of the best Barons of the Barry Saxophone in the entire world or the history of jazz. And what got him interested in the Barry Saxophone? Because in his mid-20s, Hammett Blewett heard the one and only Harry Carney, the baritone saxophone player for the Duke Ellington Band that we heard in the first set, play a live concert, and because he held such a long note for so long, it seemed like time stopped for him. And it made such an impression that he wanted to learn how to play the Barry Sax just like Harry Carney. He went on to uh, co-found the Black Artist Group Bag of St. Louis, Missouri, uh, he, he was also, he went on to uh, co-found in 1976 the World Saxophone Quartet with Julius Hempfield, Oliver Lake, and David Murray. Um, yeah, it, he's an incredible artist, and we heard the track Buka from his Bla- uh, Black Saint and Soul Note record, Nali Kola. So, yeah, certainly hope you enjoyed all of this, uh, the low-end theory barons of the Barry Sachs. It was real fun for us. Uh, remember, you can get all this information on our website, Dr. Jazz Podcast, D-R-J-A-Z-Z Podcast.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for listening. We do love you madly. And until next time, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Y'all be good now, because in jazz, we trust.